This episode is brought to you by The Great Courses Plus. You know them already. You love them. For a free trial, go to thegreatcoursesplus.com slash probably and maybe check out A Field Guide to the Planets. That is A Field Guide to the Planets on thegreatcoursesplus.com slash probably. Probably science. Welcome to Probably Science. My name is Andy Wood. I'm Matt Kirshen. We've Happy Saturday. Thank you. Thanks for remembering. <laughs> we have we've pinned down our guest. Let's just jump straight in this because yes. this is someone we've wanted for a long time. He's always bouncing between New York and LA. We worked together a while back on Comedy Knockout, but he's since lowered himself from that great height to the multiple Emmy winning Marvelous Mrs. Maisel. It's Noah Garden Schwartz. Hey, Noah. Hey. Thank you for having me. Wonderful to be here. I'm sorry about the rapid decline in your career. Yeah, man. I tough. know. I mean, when you start off on a program like Comedy Knockout, it's all downhill from there. It is. You know? So <laughs> I just kind of accepted my reality and tried to pick up the pieces. <laughs> How are you doing, mate? I'm You've doing great. A lot of things happening in your life since I saw you last. A whole lot. There's a ring on your finger. I'm married. Uh, married, expecting a child. But again biggest news finally got on probably science yeah. thank you if i had Very to rank them in order <laughs> marriage and child would be tied slightly lower than guest on probably science well because this episode is forever exactly <laughs> <laughs> exactly that should be like if there is a podcasting alliance that should be the fucking slogan yeah this podcast a, po- is a podcast is forever yes. i mean it's gonna be out there yeah sell not- some diamonds yeah <laughs> just for christmas the beers of, of podcasting uh, yeah, you have a boy. You just announced on Instagram. It's public knowledge, and it's on this podcast now. Yes, we're gonna we, be having a boy. We, we're having a baby boy due in May. Do you, have you picked a name? Is the name a secret? We have picked a name. The name is kind of a, like we're we're not going around advertising it, but Esther has a joke about it. So if anyone goes and sees her perform, they'll know the name. <laughs> <laughs> so it, it, it's as much of a secret as comedians can keep. You know, it's like we're already building material off of it. Yeah. Right, right. Oh, all, all, be- I'll, all I'll tell you is, my name is Noah, her name is Esther, and we are keeping with the biblical trend. Right. And it's slightly more Jewish than Noah or Esther, so it's it's an aggressively Jewish name. Ezekiel? No, but... It, Methuselah? Nebuchadnezzar. There it is. Nebuchadnezzar Garden Swords <laughs> yeah. coming to you May 21st. We're just going to start going through the different champagne bottle <laughs> exactly, sizes. that's all I know. <laughs> yes. People who are 800 years old or have champagne bottles named for them, yeah. Yeah, no, Nebuchadnezzar and uh, Magnum, we're, and we're actually making sure people pronounce it with the Hebrew, so it's going to be Nebuchadnezzar. <laughs> I didn't realize that Esther was even a biblical name. I, I don't know why I didn't know that. Queen, uh, Queen Esther, the uh, Pur- the Purim story. It's more the Megillah than the Torah, but still within Purim, the Jewish pantheon. Purim's like the Jewish Thanksgiving kind of. Uh, you know, it's what, ca- well, it's kind of celebrated like the Jewish Halloween. It's where Halloween, everyone, it's where okay. everyone dresses up. Yeah, I know there's a there's an analogous thing for every, and then yeah, um, there's a Jewish version. Sukkot of, is like Jewish Burning Man, right? The, it's you live in yeah. the. I would say Sukkot is like Sukkot. Jewish Thanksgiving. Actually, oh, okay. that's like the harvest festival. But you live outside in like a makeshift thing, right? Yeah. So if you have like cool Jewish parents, then it's Burning Man. Okay. I guess. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I think when we were recording, sometimes my neighbors would be living in that. In the sh- oh, you mean back in the day when oh, we right. were in, up in, in Bluebell Ranch? Right, right, right. Um, did you actually live outside in that? Or no, my, how orthodox w- do you have to be to... No, I mean, we, we had a sukkah in our backyard every year. Like, I grew up 
observing Sukkot, but we didn't sleep out in the Sukkot. We would just have our meals out there. But we do some go, people sleep in it or not? Yeah, the the most religious people sleep out there. We okay. would just have our dinner out there. That seems pretty fun, just like a family camping trip in the yard. I could, yeah. Even yeah. separate from the religious part of it. Like, but I grew up in Denver, so it would have been a little too cold oh, okay. to yeah. sleep out there. That's right. I got to pick your brain because you had a Denver wedding. I did. I'm going to be at some point in the new year having a Denver wedding. Oh, yeah? Mazel so, tov. Oh, thank you. What, yeah, is is your fiancé from Denver? She is, yeah. Oh, great. Well, we had a wonderful time. I need, need to it's, know photographer names, caterers. I, Wait, let's I, take advantage of this medium right here. Yeah, are we on it. Probably Science or Probably a Jew getting married? <laughs> <laughs> it, no, I, I was wondering like how many, because we've, we've got some solid hookups in the past. I'm sure we got listeners who are photographers in Denver. I, how photographers, I, if anyone makes suits or wedding dresses. I will happily there. give you references to any people that you need in the industry because we are very happy with all of our vendors. But more importantly, I will tell you that as far as destination weddings go, because most of our friends are not from Denver, they are all, it's a city that people are happy to travel to. It's one of those ones where they're like excited to get to go to Denver for a variety of reasons. Yeah, we're planning like, out activities for the visiting yeah, well, family. Well, we look at a horse. We look had at a mountain. A, we ha- we <laughs> had like a, a things to do guide, but but on the top of the things to do, we we're just like, here's a great dispensary because you're going to get that question a million times from sure. people our age, especially in the comedy community. Like, where can I? It's like, we're going to get address. weed. Yeah, just go. Here. Don't worry, you're going to have too much. You're going to have to leave it behind when you fly home. You're, you know what's interesting though is before the wedding, we called one of our favorite dispensaries and basically asked like can we get a discount code or can we get like joints for the gift bags for our friends and we're happy to say you provide the sponsorship and they're like we would love to but because we can't prove that everyone consuming the weed would be 21 it's a legal liability so we can't be like oh. involved in any kind of event promotion like that that they're, that that they're logic, not hands that logic, on you wouldn't be able to get donated booze for things either but you can you well I, I mean I doubt Maybe I don't know. I mean, I doubt if you called Coors and we're like, "Can we get a keg?" Well, yeah, but I've I've heard of cases where people have, like, in the early days of Pabst when they were when they were starting to get their hipster cred in like the yeah. early two thousands. I had a friend who would throw parties and then just email Pabst and be like, "Hey, I'm throwing <laughs> a party. Do you want it to be a Pabst branded party?" And they would just send him a bunch of beer. Yeah, I like, don't know. It, <laughs> Oddly enough, the weed industry is more of a stickler for rules. Yeah, I guess. <laughs> I guess. Um, hey, no, let's get into. Firstly, we'd like to ask you guys this before we get into the stories. What, if anything, is your background in science? My background in science is fascination, but not success. Like, I, I was always a good student. I'm very good in English, math, history, all that. Science, I've always struggled with. I love biology, chemistry, physics. Don't do well with it academically. It's been my, it's been a, a, a rough spot for me academically, but I, I'm fascinated by science. That's cool, though. That's... That puts you in the sort of upper third of our guests in terms of like people. We definitely had a lot of our guests who were just horrified by the subject or really put off. Oh no, I'm fa- I love it. Like I'm I'm intrigued to hear what stories you have coming up. I'm just not good at understanding or speaking technically about it. Yeah, which is totally fine. Well, should we just get straight into a story? Yeah, we've got a bunch of uh, stories that were sent in by multiple listeners. Sometimes we we have a story that comes in that's. Right in our sweet spot, and listeners seem to know that, and they're all like, you guys are definitely going to have to talk about this. Does this one involve ants by any chance? It does involve ants. So many people sent this story. Yes. Apparently, one million cannibal ants trapped in a Soviet nuclear bunker have escaped. Every part of that sentence sounds correct. (laughs) (laughs) By the Uh, way, I just finished, since we last recorded, I finished watching Chernobyl. Have you guys watched it? I have watched it. 
holy shit i don't know how it escaped me until now how bad it was i just thought it was like a, a how bad oh, chernobyl crisis was. averted not the show the, right the, the, the tragedy yes. like i was alive for that and i remember you know the stories here I thought it was like, oh man, this could have been really bad. It's like, no, it was really bad. <laughs> it was, I, yeah. I I didn't watch it because I heard people talking about it who were all praising what a good show it was, but saying like how depressing and tough of a watch it was. I don't really get scared of scary movies. Like I love horror movies; they don't actually scare me or stick with me. This kept me up at night. So <laughs> yeah, there were a few very brutal episodes. Yeah. And... Hmm. Anyway, you know, so this it... is not that story, but. It's just somewhat related. You look it's at the Chernobyl of ants. Chernobyl of ants. The Chernobyl of ants. Sure. A colony, in quotes. I'm on the Newsweek article okay. that was sent in by Chris Nelson, but a bunch of people sent in versions of it. Thank you, listeners. A colony of up to one million cannibal ants trapped in a nuclear bunker for years have escaped, say scientists in Poland. The ants, which had no food source other than their dead nestmates, were first discovered in 2013 and were found to be solely made up of worker ants, meaning they could not reproduce. How their numbers grew so large was a mystery. In a study published in the... Well, I've, strange word here. It's yeah. a very strange word. The Journal of Hymenoptera Research, which that's sounds... The, that's the one that T.I. is. Yeah. <laughs> very active in that. I need a hymenopterologist, please. Is that, the, is that the scientific word for ants? I... Don't. What is I'm 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 googling this as we speak in real time. It is a large order of insta- insects comprising the sawflies, wasps, bees, and ants. Okay, all right. I wonder if it's somehow related in terms of like what, what the, yeah what's the uh, etymology? You you keep going with this. I'm gonna I'm gonna investigate hymens. I'm gonna go real ti on this. Females <laughs> you typically be careful with what you Google <laughs> yeah. in your investigation. Females typically have a special ovipositor for inserting eggs into hosts or places that are otherwise inaccessible. So, I guess, yeah, if any, if any of our listeners out there are always shelling eggs in places they shouldn't be, then you might be a hymenopterist. <laughs> That's the, the Jeff Answorthy uh, yeah. school. If you... <laughs> <laughs> By the way, yes, hymenoptera, it, they are both related. Hymen, the, that part of it means membrane. So the whole word means uh, winged membrane or membrane wing. Optera, like... Um, for her comfort? For, right, sure, yeah. <laughs> Researchers have now studied the colony to understand how it functioned and installed an escape route to see if its members would leave their home given the option. The team, led by Wolczyk Czerwkowski from the Museum Institute Institute of Zoology and the Polish Academy of Sciences, were carrying out a survey of bats living in an abandoned Soviet nuclear bunker when they came across the wood ants living in an ammunition bunker where nuclear weapons were once kept. The ants had no access to the outside world and appeared to have come from a nest above that was positioned over a ventilation pipe. When the ants fell down the pipe, they were entombed in the bunker. Entombed sounds pretty... Yeah. That's intense. Entombed in a Russian nuclear bunker. I love it. I mean, I can't think of things I'd rather investigate less than nuclear ants in Russia. (laughs) (laughs) Everything about it. Yeah, so this isn't a site that's like unsafe for humans to visit or anything. It's not like... Is this so? A nuclear bunker is a bunker that is shelter from nuclear activity, right? Rather than a bunker full of nuclear stuff. Well, I thought this one was a storage facility for nuclear weapons, wasn't it? Was it? Uh, I'll let you check that out while I carry on with the story. However, after returning to the site two years later, scientists found the colony was not only still there, but it had grown in numbers. This was despite there being no obvious food source, no heat, no light. A population estimate suggests there were hundreds of thousands, if not one million, living in the bunker. 
Ants are known to set up colonies in unusual places. Nests have been found in the chassis of a car inside a wooden box in complete darkness that could only be accessed by a tiny skip at the base. However, in all cases, the ants were able to come and go. The masses of Formica poly... Polysnet... Polycytena, I think. Polyctena? How do you pronounce Polyctena? that? Polyctena? I have no idea. Polyctena. I think you're I probably know. right there. Who knows? Trapped in the bunker. I would, bet, I would bet definitely not Polyctena. Not Polyctena? <laughs> no, that, Polyct- would be my, that would be my least favorite pronunciation of this <laughs> word that none of us know. Uh, let's, let's look that up as well in a second. <laughs> this is a lot of tricky words. Hang on. Yeah, and a Google. I'll keep going. So the masses so, of Formica Polyctena workers trapped in the bunker had no choice, the team wrote. They were merely surviving and continuing their social tasks on the conditions set by the extreme environment. In 2016, scientists found the colony was still there, and the team set out to analyze its behavior. They installed a boardwalk that led to another ventilation pipe that the ants could use to escape the bunker. A year later, they returned to the site to find the colony had almost completely vanished. The team inspected the corpses that they left behind and found bite marks and holes, mostly in the abdomen. This, they said, was evidence the ants were eating of their deceased nestmates in order to survive. After being provided an escape route, the ants appear to have made their way back to the original nest. On falling down the original ventilation pipe, they were able to make their way back so the bunker was deserted. The survival and growth of the bunker colony through the years without producing its own offspring was possibly owing was possible owing to continuous supply of new workers from the upper oh so it's just like food falling from the ceiling in the form of your brethren that's uh, from the upper nest an accumulation of nestmate corpses the team concluded the corpses served as an inexhaustible source of food which substantially allowed survival of the ants trapped down in otherwise extremely unfavorable conditions alright here's a pronunciation guide from howtopronounce.com there is only one example and it has zero votes there's so, this whole YouTube thing well, of, what is it? of these Let's robot see. voices. Polyctena. Oh, you were right. Uh, oh, see, I forgot it was a Russian word. Yeah, duh, duh. Hang on, no, it's, it's, that's the Latin name for it. So I think this is just someone doing a, <laughs> that's without, yeah. either their natural or a weird accent. It feels like someone's really putting on that accent. Hang on yeah. a second. Formica polyctena. <laughs> You, you, yeah. I'm sorry, you think someone's trying to do... I don't know what Latin accents are supposed to sound like. Does anyone well, have theories about what Latin would have sounded like? I don't know. Do they sound a bit Italian? I don't I don't know. It's like the first time you yeah, have a teacher would, try... I would have guessed a little Spanish-Italian twist to it. Yeah. Because I heard someone's... I did, I did have to do Latin at school for a couple of years, and I feel... So in my head, Latin is pronounced by an old English man. Right. Yeah. <laughs> I was going to say, have you heard people speak Old English and like that weird? The, I'm, yeah, this all has to be guesses, right? When it's languages well, that I don't know. Again, by the way, uh, we oh, we did have a few responses to possible linguists that we could reach out to when we mentioned it a while ago. Oh, that's right. Yeah. Also, shout out to our friend Nick, who has spoken about studying linguistics at university. Nick Doody, who is literally on the show. Oh, and we just didn't. No, we, 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 he was on. We were talking about a little. He bit was, about but it. then three weeks later, we were going like, we don't know any kind of yeah. uh, students of linguistics. And then I got a message from Nick going like, hey, yeah. uh, you're not going to mention, like, and we, I guess I was assuming that you remembered that because we had talked about this subject. Yeah, that was what put it in my head. Well, linguistics aside, but, just to be hey, clear, Nick, love you. This story was about ants who were trapped in a nuclear setting 
ultimately had a chance to escape but chose not to because they oh, no, no, built no. a sufficient colony that was constantly growing because other ants were falling down the trap and getting eaten alive. No, they couldn't They couldn't leave and let, until scientists made this little bridge right. for them to get back out. So right. they were just stuck there. And But food kept falling from the ceiling in the form of more of them. Okay. So they were able to survive because more of their buddies kept falling. And now <laughs> but, but now that they can leave, have they? They all left. They oh, all have they, left. Once oh. they built this bridge. They all oh, okay. fucked off. They, oh, okay. they, they're they're they all back behind. in the world, but they've got a taste for blood now. What right. is it like being an ant out in the wild and coming across one of these nuclear ants? It's like knowing what that's yeah, like. That's like party. seeing the illest murder get released from prison yeah. back into society. <laughs> like he's a former worker ant is now the boss for sure. Yeah, yeah. it's like they've all come back from war. Yeah, right. it's I like s- that post Second World War, post Vietnam generation where everyone's just, just been through some shit. It. Yeah. But in answer to your question from before, I think. I think they can make guesses about how words would be pronounced based on where those languages have ended up now and what they sound like. Yeah, what the various roots are. Polyktina. Polyktina. Interesting side note about that. No one in Chernobyl even attempts a Russian accent. They're all British actors. <laughs> it's like an HBO Sky co production, and they're like, we're hey, just going to do our regular thing. Right, Yiddish cast British. Yeah. That's what they say. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Have you never heard that? No, I thought that was a totally made up. Wait, what do you mean? What? Like Jewish writers, British actors. Oh, 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 God. That's Prestige drama is what you need. That's funny. No, I never heard that. <laughs> All right. Um, so, yeah, I've, I think I got to the end of this pretty much. Let's see. Um, Should we do another really important story about left-handers? Let me just finish up one last thing. So, yeah, Go on. Uh, so this case of the cannibal colony shows the extreme... The extremes what ants will go to in order to maintain self-organization, even under conditions going far beyond the limits of the survival of the species. More generally, the present case adds a dimension to the great adaptive ability of ants to marginal habitats and suboptimal, that's putting it lightly, conditions as they keep understanding their unquestionable (laughs) eco-evolutionary success. Suboptimal, you have to eat your friends. Yeah. In in a nuclear reactor. Right. (laughs) Eating other ones of your species while amongst nuclear... Deserted nuclear we- Soviet weapons, but not wrong. Those are suboptimal. Yeah, conditions. it's definitely suboptimal. So, no, what did you have? Well, I was going to do the story that Aaron Minish sent in, saying left ha- left-handed women's quirk over sense of smell. This is a BBC article. Scientists have discovered a biological anomaly that could change how we understand our sense of smell. Some people can smell normally despite missing the part of the brain that is considered to be crucial for smell, the olfactory bulbs. Lacking bulbs should cause a somni- uh, anosmia, rather, mm-hmm. which is the inability to smell. Curiously, the phenomenon mostly affects left-handed women and has never been detected in men. I am marrying a left-handed woman. I don't know whether I should... Oh. Well, that's probably a benefit for you if yeah. you marry a woman that can't smell. But apparently she can smell if she has... She may lack the part of her Wait, brain it, that... If she hasn't called, showered. It's called isnomia? Yeah. Uh, Anosmia is the word meaning be, is that just means being unable to smell. Anosmia is to smelling what blindness is to sight. Imagine being a dyslexic person with insomnia. Yes. <laughs> like I can't sleep or smell. So, but this specific condition is people who lack the part of the brain that helps you smell. So you look at their you do a brain scan and, and think, okay, this person should have anosmia, anosmia, but doesn't. Mm-hmm. So, this is a, by the way, weirdly specific just explaining what smell is in this BBC article. All the people who shouldn't be able to smell that can are left-handed women? 
it particularly yeah it most are mostly left-hand w- women but it change this is going to change how we understand how smiling works so firstly just this bbc article seems feels like it's necessary to explain the concept of smelling things it goes so how do we smell a fresh mug of coffee a garden flower or even a newborn's soiled nappy of oh, the three types of smelling right the yeah. three things you can smell. Well, those are three very distinct smells. They are very distinct. Current science says odors enter the nose where they excite nerve endings. This creates an electrical signal that travels up to a specialized part of the brain called the olfactory bulbs. They process the signals coming from the nose to work out what we are sniffing. Except researchers at the Weissman Institute of Science in Israel have found people who have a normal sense of smell, even though they are bulbless. It doesn't make them think maybe the bulb doesn't do what you think it does. Yeah. <laughs> Shouldn't that... Uh... Right. So, well, scientists stumbled across the first example when doing brain span- scans of people with a healthy sense of smell as part of a completely unrelated study. Professor Noam Sobel, who was one of the researchers, told BBC News, we could not find any sign of olfactory bulb in her brain. It's a nominally. That doesn't make sense, right? The woman was left-handed, and the researchers wanted to compare her brain to other left-handed women to see what was going on. They only had to scan another nine brains before they found another woman with no bulbs, but, and I quote, a cracking sense of smell. It's very British. It really is. But, like, weirdly colloquial for a news article. Like, yeah. God, that's not a quote, by the way. That's not in quotes like the scientist or someone said that. That is the article writer's own interpretation. Like, my word, she had a cracking sense of smell. <laughs> that, that bird. She had a sense of smell that could light up a room, I tell you. It doesn't matter what word you use. If you say it with a British accent, it sounds appropriate. <laughs> it was overwhelmingly shocking. This started ringing all the bells, said Professor Sobel. The team then turned to a public library of over a thousand brain scans, the Human Connectome Project, and found yet more examples. The phenomenon has never been detected in men, but is present in more than 4% of left-handed women. He had no clue, Professor had no clue why gender and left-handedness seemed to be involved. See, but, okay, so 4%, is that scientifically significant? Like, is it, if 4% of your studies leads to something, well, I think do you this, really feel confident as I think a in this case, in just even case, any, like any, even... All of them, all the all the cases they found that existed were in women. There weren't very many, but there were none okay. in men at all, right? Yeah, and, and they are particularly more present in left-handed women. But also just the fact that it exists at all is bizarre. The fact that it even 0.01% exists is surprising. So... They only have they have a few ideas. One possibility is that the women do have olfactory bulbs, but they are so small they cannot be detected on brain scans. But this does not explain how they retain such a good sense of smell with such compromised bulbs. With their sense of smell is once again cracking. <laughs> Another explanation is the brain's ability to adapt, known as plasticity. If a child is born without olfactory bulbs, maybe another part of the brain takes on the bulb's aroma discerning responsibilities. But the researchers have raised a more controversial example. Also, ex- explanation which challenges the current understanding of smell. They argue that the bulbs may not be involved in recognizing smells and instead have a different role, potentially for locating a smell rather than identifying it. Mm. So this could be the part of the brain that determines who smelt, who dealt it. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Very important for third graders to read this article. Yeah. I didn't know we smelled in three D. I guess I wonder we if have they two nostrils is that part of the. I wonder if they did any follow up with these women who supposedly have no bulbs to check their sense of taste because the two are very linked right sense of smell sense of taste like i wonder if they are 
Yeah, I mean, I don't even know if they're related in terms of like just that if you plug your nose, you just don't taste much because a lot of what you call taste is just smell. I don't. Yeah, I don't know. I don't know if the part of the brain that it's connected to your tongue is is close to there. Or... Uh, it'd be interesting to see if like left-handed women are notoriously horrible chefs because oh. <laughs> their their sense of smell is weakened, and so or is it just because they can't find kitchenware that fits their left hands? Also true. It's a good Simpsons episode. Uh, the leftorium. Yeah, <laughs> Flanders would have helped them out a lot. The. Uh... Professor Matthew Cobb of the University of Manchester said, the fact that their olfactory ability is virtually identical to that of normal subjects is very surprising. He's the author of the forthcoming book, Smell, a very short introduction, <laughs> and says the living brain is very flexible and may be compensating for a lack of olfactory bulbs. I like how even the title of his book, he's like, listen, guys, I don't, I don't, I don't have much of your time here. I know. Yeah. <laughs> you, you can stick with me for a little while. Very unimportant, yeah. but... Trust me, this book is good for five to ten minutes of your time. Yeah. Well, imagine writing a book that was like, smell, a trilogy. Like, <laughs> nah, <I'm good. laughs> Just blowing the dust off this giant. <laughs> uh, for example, says Professor Cobb, there is a man in Marseille, which sounds like either the beginning of a limerick, either the beginning of a limerick or some kind of like sea shanty or ode. There is a man in Marseille whose cortex, the region of the brain generally thought to be involved in higher intellectual functions, is compressed into a tiny sliver of cells, yet he is of average intelligence and holds down a job as a civil servant. In China, a young woman has no cerebellum. Now this sounds like a riddle. Uh, (laughs) If she leaves Beijing at (laughs) 2.30... The structure at the base of the brain involved in coordination, that's the cerebellum, and although she does have slurred speech and poor coordination, these symptoms are nowhere near as serious as animal studies would suggest they should be. So again, different parts of the brain may have taken over, or the brain has adapted in some way or another to compensate for these lacks, these lacking. Still, that that's sort of a funny way to end it, where you think it's about to be this amazing. She doesn't have it, and yet everything's fine. It's like, no, she's still pretty pretty messed up. But not as messed up as we thought she would be, considering. Yeah, sure, she yells on an hourly basis. But, but who doesn't? I live in New York City. Yeah. That's actually <laughs> under the average. We moved to New York and then undiagnosed her. Yeah, yeah. yeah this is interesting. It's uh, it's sort of like the opposite of... Or no, it, reminds, I mean, it reminds me of two things that are also tied to gender we've talked about. The fact that women don't aren't diagnosed with autism as much, and some of the theory of that is like they do actually have it in the same rates, but somehow can just like adapt better and learn to fake not having it isn't that a thing we talked about that sounds familiar to you i believe it is and then also that they have i think only women are tetrachromats they aren't all but the only people who have four regions of color sensing are women so women are like super seers they can smell when they shouldn't be able to smell and some of them can see colors that to most people would look identical they can see differences between them do you want to... Should we do a good vaccine story? Yes. Does it relate to stopping people when from... When you say good vaccine story, <laughs> does that mean it has a positive outcome or it's just like an interesting, juicy... Uh, I think both. All right. I, I think both. Uh, the, the Ebola vaccine is now officially here with approval in Europe. Yeah. Not... Again, this, this article, by the way, in Forbes, starts very colloquially. I thought Forbes is meant to be extremely serious, but it's... Before you even get to the beginning of the article, why don't you read to us the byline? Who wrote this article, Matt? This is written by Bruce Y. Lee. Well, leave the Y out and just... <laughs> it's written by Bruce Lee, yeah, yeah. who kind is... Kind of killing Andy's joke yeah. there. <laughs> Bruce Wiley, who is, is a... That's the letter Y rather than, like, 
Coyote. Coyote, yeah. yeah. Bruce Lee is a writer, according to his byline, a writer, journalist, professor, systems modeler, computational and digital health expert, avocado eater, and entrepreneur, not always in that order. You know what he should do as a journalist? It should be Bruce Y, W-H-Y, Lee. Yeah. <laughs> and then the how, and just all the questions. Yeah, yeah. Chuck, what, Norris, and... Um... So how much does this guy love avocados that he put it in his very limited bio in Forbes? It's, yeah, doesn't everyone love avocados? That's not, it's not mention, almost not worth mentioning. I don't know. If you don't like avocados, write to us at probablyscience at gmail.com and remember to mark your envelope, avocados. Mm-hmm. It's official. We now have an Ebola vaccine. Not a kind of, almost sort of their vaccine. Not an experimental use vaccine. Not a vaccine just for macaques. No. A this macaque is, scene, if you will. <laughs> this is a vaccine that the European Commission has just approved for use in humans, the first of its kind. Get like very colloquial there, Bruce. Mm-hmm. That wasn't it bothered by across. it. It gets the point yeah. across. But I think it's fun to use some figurative language and imagery and fun to keep people engaged in an otherwise serious topic. I'm, I'm a fan of it. Well, it's like worth doing a podcast. Wait, about. Yeah. Hold tight, because it does get more annoying as the article goes on. All right. Because according to today's announcement, the European Commission has granted Merck, Sharp, and Dolbeam V marketing authorization in Europe for their Ebola vaccine named Ervibo. The approval came not too long after the European Medicines Agency had recommended approval in mid-October. Here we go. <clears throat> oh no, I don't like this at all. I no, like not a way. That's oh, why no. I said that. I'm I'm still quoting directly from the article here. This is big. Actually, it's big times big plus big. Why, Bruce? Why, Lee? <laughs> times why? Yeah. Uh, having a vaccine to protect against the Ebola virus is a game changer. The Ebola virus, in technical terms, really sucks. Okay, now it's getting. I don't like this. It's a anymore. nasty virus that can cause a severe and deadly hemorrhagic fever. Fever means fever as in body temperature rising. And hemorrhagic means bleeding as in blood leaking out of blood vessels inside your body and your skin and potentially your eyes, ears, nose, mouth, and rectum. I don't, I don't think... I think you should yeah, stop eating the avocados. You know what? Yeah. This, this article is an example of when someone tells you who they are, believe them. He, <laughs> he, he showed us from the first sentence what he was about. Uh, yeah, Mike Brown, why would you send in this story? But also thank you for sending in this story. It is a good story. I mean, it's a, it's an important thing that... Uh, I mean, it's big times big yeah, plus big. It is. <laughs> uh, but fucking hell. How can this virus wreak, su- wreak, wreak such havoc? The virus is a sneaker sucker. It first targets cells that serve you as your immune system's first line of defense. I'm No, fuck you. I'm not doing the Ocean's Eleven analogy that Bruce has shoved in this article. As friends a, are going to send this this podcast back. To I'm us. sorry, Bruce. You're doing important work, and thank you for sharing this medical news with the world. But it's a bit much. But you're not going to get to the part where it compares macrophages to Cookie Monster. <laughs> is that real? Yeah. Oh God, it is. Yeah. <laughs> it really. Is. You know what his you know what his writing feels like. Like when you used to have to do a book report in school and it had to be 700 words and you were at like 649, but you have already said everything you had to say. And he's like, okay, very, big times big very. plus big. Uh, Which is also how Trump talks. Like yeah. he's padding an essay. It's yeah. Very, very. Event. So as a result, your immune system cannot even recognize something as a miss. Eventually macrophages gobble up the viruses. I'm jumping over analogies here. Monster. Yeah. yeah. This then triggers your macrophages to do the wrong thing. They release proteins that initiate a cascade of events that can cause the formation of small blood clots, inflammation, and leaks in your blood vessels throughout your body, which leads to the unhappy combination of you losing blood and blood flow to your organs being blocked, which starves your organs of oxygen. This process is what ends up killing up to 90% of those infected. 
And it's also costly as well, boner infections, as... Did you say boner infections? It like Ebola. boner infections. Oh. Boner infections are also costly. <laughs> so, it says, by the way, in this article, as our FICOR team study published in the Journal of Pathogens and Global Health showed. So, may, I think Bruce might have been part of this team. Okay. Um, let's good have good a look. work then, Bruce. This Thanks, cancels Bruce. out the, the writing. But showed that the cost of each case can raise, range from several hundred dollars if you fully recover to close to 20k if you don't survive. This is why you... It costs a lot to die. Yeah. It's an expensive... You can catch the virus from... It says, this is why you never want to get, get infected by the Ebola virus. I would say the dying is more yeah. important than the cost, although they, bo- they both are bad, but I would... Both. It's the bleeding through your eyeballs to death mm-hmm. uh, that I would rather not have than the being in debt. You can catch the virus from contacting the body fluids of an infected person, fruit bat, or non-human primates such as an ape or monkey. As the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention explains, until now, the only thing you could do to prevent an Ebola vi- infection was to avoid the virus, which may be relatively easy in the US, but not so easy in the middle of an outbreak such as the one that rocked West Africa from 2014 to 2016. By the way, the fact that he's been padding this article is interesting because it's already a pretty long article. He, 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 didn't have to, he didn't have to do all the extra word stuff. Anyway. So yeah, he is the article, of, he, he is the author of The Cost of an Ebola Case, or he's one of the three authors. He's a multi-hyphenate. If the um, if his name is bolded and it's the last in the list, does that mean that he's the primer, the principal author? Scientist, oh, is that how it works? I don't. Yeah, that just means he's an egomaniac. Because, because look, he's. I would have thought the first scientist listed would be the principal author, but his name is bolded at the end. Does it not go in alphabetical order? Oh yeah, you're right. Uh and I don't even have a computer in front of me to look yeah. at it. Just... <laughs> yeah, it is in alphabetical order. That, that could well be it. So, the Ebola vaccine works by exposing you to a form of the virus that can't cause an infection, which prompts your immune system to, in effect, say... <laughs> is, this, is this some more yes. Bruce Lee wording? Give yeah. it to me. This prompts your immune system to, in effect, say, hmm, what is this? Oh, this doesn't look good. We should get prepared for when this virus returns. That's not the worst thing. And then he carries on with the Ocean's Eleven analogy okay. from earlier on. I'm not going to do it. Health officials have been using the vaccine on an experimental basis to try to control Ebola outbreaks that have been going on in the DRC, as descri- um, which, you know, is war-torn down there in the Democratic Republic of Congo. Not the easiest place to test the vaccine. Nevertheless... Researchers managed to test its efficacy in the country, and the vaccine had an estimated protected efficacy of 97.5% in field studies there. That's really good. Uh, That is remarkably high. Nothing in life is 100%, but also depends on how many people around you are vaccinated. But that has a high, that would say to me that that has a high probability of getting some herd immunity there if enough people get covered. That's great. Uh, luckily, we've all also accepted that vaccines work and we should use them and there's no reason not to, right? There is Matt? no reason not to, <laughs> apart from all of the anti-vaccine, which according to this story, listen to John sent in, apparently turns out nearly all of the anti-vax adverts on Facebook are funded by just two organizations. Really? And one of What them, are those organizations? One well, of them involves the Kennedy. Yeah. There's Larry Cook's Stop Mandatory Vaccinations, and Robert F. Kennedy Jr.'s 
World Mercury Project between them bought 54% of ads on Facebook. Yeah, I, I think RFK Jr. made news this year for some anti-vax stuff that also involved... There was a celebrity that was doing stuff with him that was tied up in that, right? Oh, I don't know. It's so depressing. Yeah. I've I've seen various friends of mine online go down that rabbit hole as well and just... Down the anti-vax. Jessica Biel. Remember Jessica Biel? She was lobbying, yeah. lobbying with RFK Jr. for this. Oh, is that it? Yeah. I, don't, I, I fucking find myself arguing Does every time and I can't resist child? it. I don't know. Does RFK Jr.? What's his connection to it? I he just knows the truth, man. He needs right. to get it out. Yeah. Uh, absolutely, we were surprised, says David Broniatowski, who's professor of engineering at George Washington University, who's one of the authors of this report. These two individuals were generating the majority of the content. Cook, Larry Cook uses crowdfunding platforms to raise money for Facebook ads and his personal expenses, which is, again, the fucking hustle. There's the... He pays himself 80000 a year to be an anti-vaxxer. <laughs> yeah. Uh, the crowdfunding platform GoFundMe banned him and his fundraisers in March of this year. YouTube has demonetized his videos. Kennedy is the son of former U.S. Attorney General Bobby Kennedy, and he has a non-profit fo- focused on environmental causes. His brother, sister, and niece publicly criticized his dangerous misinformation about vaccines in May. They caused his, called his work against vaccinations tragically wrong. What's it like? Again, to be it's the, a fucking grift. It's all a grift. What's it like to be the black sheep of the Kennedy family? Yeah, right. <laughs> in fact, vaccines are one of the safest and most effe- and more effective medical interventions ever developed. The Vaccine Journal study is the first to analyze anti-vax ads in Facebook's advertising archive. The archive is an ad disclosure database Facebook created after the platform was criticized for spending untraceable misinformation during the Brexit referendum and the 2016 U- U.S. presidential campaign. It's so crazy, his Zuckerberg's defense. Like, well, the other platforms have decided that this stuff is damaging. They're going to demonetize it or take it down. But he's like, oh, no, well, let the people decide. Like, well, the people are give, being given incorrect information. It's being forced upon them. And you're targeting the ones who are most likely to believe that incorrect information. And you're yep. relying on everyone's just and general intelligence to, to avoid bad things. And, and it's micro-targeting. Here's the problem. So, so Facebook has more than 2 billion users and roughly 68% of Americans get their news from the platform said the study. In 2019, the World Health Organization named vaccine hesitancy as one of the world's top 10 global health threats. Facebook's micro-targeting algorithms, unlike TV, radio, and newspapers, have allowed anti-vax groups to hone in on individuals. It says home in. Is home in or hone in? Anyway. Hone in. I think they're both... I think Are they both accurate? Also, like a homing pigeon... That's true. ...homes in on things, right? So they can... They can nah, zero I think, I think in. Bruce Lee just fucked up. Okay. They can focus. Different article now. This is a different oh. They can still, focus I'm on blaming, individuals. I'm still blaming Bruce. <laughs> this is a Guardian article now. They can focus on individuals who may be susceptible to doubts about vaccines. In particular, women and parents of young children have been targeted by stop mandatory vaccination, and Cook was even censured by last year by the UK Advertising Standards Authority. Unless you're in the target audience, you're not going to see an ad, so it's hard to know what other organizations might be running, says Emily Lowther, a uh, spokesperson for the Minnesota Hospitals Association, which has pro-vaccination ads. Or Jesus Christ. So they had pro-vaccination ads automatically removed from Facebook. It's unclear why Facebook removed the ads. Again, from the Minnesota what? Hospitals Association. Oh from our God. organization's perspective, says Emily Lowther, 
vaccine and misinformation causes real harm to individuals and their communities. So yeah, this is a problem. You can't even tell what they're putting out there because they're micro-targeting people who might be susceptible and you don't know how much is out there. Researchers from George Washington University, Johns Hopkins Uni, and the University of Maryland analyzed more than 500 ads posted between... It's quite a small sample size. I don't know why they didn't do more. Posted between the end of December and the beginning... uh, December 2018 and February 2019, when Facebook again updated its vaccine-related ads policies. Of the ads, 163 were pro-vaccine and 145 promoted alleged harms of vaccination. While the pro-vax messages came from 83 unique organizations within healthcare... 54% 54% of anti-vax messages came from just two buyers, the ones led by Kennedy and Cook. They also tended to be seen by more people and to have larger budgets with up to $499 per ad. Anti-vax ads routinely reached audiences of between 5,000 and 50,000 people. And here's the grift. Often they linked back to products people could buy, including, quote, natural remedies, books, and seminars. Uh, that can't be the reason. Ken- Kennedy doesn't need money from this. He just believes in this dumb thing, I think he right? does as well. I, th- I think probably Larry he Cook follow, does as well to an extent. Follow the dark web money. <laughs> yeah. But that, that's what, again, the thing that fucking gets me when they're like, big pharma, man, follow the money. Who's profiting from this? And you're like, what, tens of thousands of research scientists yeah. are all on the take, even though there's no evidence for this, compared to these couple of small organizations who are also selling uh, fucking goop seminars yeah, and natural yeah. uh again and natural vaccines and chiropractic and homeopathy fuck you yeah uh it's so depressed like i don't see it how is. this is gonna end it's uh <laughs> a typical ad run by stop mandatory vaccinations alleges and this again this is a quote from one of the ads healthy 14 week inf- old infant gets eight vaccines and dies within 24 h uh, I'm guessing hours. I'm guessing that means hours, yeah. Researchers said new Facebook ru- rules established to promote transparency are actually penalizing pro-vax ads run by hospitals and healthcare providers. Facebook is easy enough to game if you can figure out which combination of words will get flagged, says Nicholas Marcolia, a digital strategist with Tunheim who crafts ads for the Minnesota Hospitals Association. We don't adjust our messaging to get past them. Why doesn't he do that? I don't Should know. he do that if he knows what they are? Why would you... He, he says most of the hospital association's ads are automatically flagged as politically sensitive and that social media workers then have to resubmit them to Facebook for human review, which is a time-consuming process. I've never heard the term politically sensitive in my life. Yeah. What a fucking dumb... It, it isn't surprising that someone who is thinking critically can craft an ad to run on the system. It's a luxury Minnesota has... It's a luxury that Minnesota has a strong enough hospital association to take on that role for our state. By contrast, anti-vax groups are specialists... They post dozens of anti-vax ads per year and are well acquainted with Facebook's new disclosure requirements. Broniatowski says, although they are spreading misinformation, they are following the letter of the terms. This is a situation where the letter of the terms is not consistent with the intent of it. A Facebook company spokesperson says, we tackle vaccine misinformation on Facebook, we're reducing its distribution and connecting people with authoritative information from experts on the topic. We partner with leading public health organizations such as the World Health Organization, which has publicly identified vaccine hoaxes. If these hoaxes appear on Facebook, we will take action against them, including rejecting ads. Uh, fuck you, because it clearly doesn't work. Fuck you. Yeah, uh, we're, we're tackling misinformation by reducing its distribution. Just end its distribution. Like, you you know, in this case, which things are bullshit and you just want to get their money. You... Well, yeah, that that's it. 
They just want to get their money. It's so fucking stupid. Oh. It's like it's like the way Vegas makes money off of the book is by making sure there's an even amount of bets on both sides. Yeah. So Facebook is Playing pretty much sides. evening out the vaccine. <laughs> yeah. Just hedging. Anti, yeah. Just in case they win. Yeah, it's... It, and again, like... It, so much of it comes down from a couple of things. Just like, firstly, the bias towards anecdote. It's very hard to interpret yeah. data compared to anecdote. And then just basic mathematical illiteracy as well, which is... Again, one of the arguments I got into the other day, which was just, I, I shouldn't, t- like, I know the people who post it are never going to be convinced, but I, a bit of me ends up replying just because someone who's maybe the on the fence doesn't, and this was one, it was some, like, there was some outbreak of, I think it was measles or mumps, it was, maybe it was mumps, whatever it was, it was an outbreak of something in a school in Canada, and the article said that like, this number of kids were infected and none of the unvaccinated kids got infected uh-huh. but then i just looked up the numbers and when you compared there were like 11 unvaccinated kids in the school compared to several hundred vaccinated kids you go like yeah that's how it works vaccines aren't 100 percent safe the chances are if you've got if you if you've got a weighted coin and you toss it several hundred times it's gonna land on the non-weighted side, right? Even though it usually, it's gonna, yeah. yeah, it's gonna. You've got so many more goes at the unlikely thing. Yeah, the same way again. People win the lottery most weeks because thousands, millions of tickets are bought. Well, you know, I mean, right. To a certain degree, statistics can be manipulated to prove whatever point you're trying to make. But in general, the problem with all this is that people do. We're wired to understand things on a small level. And understand stories and a person who's looking at us and crying and telling us their story more than we're able to like process the idea of a hundred thousand people going through something. You know, right. like, that's not. Yeah, it's very. Which again is why we've talked about this before on the show. But what when they've tested which types of pro-vaccination stories gather the most traction, the ones that do inevitably are ones like horror stories of unvaccinated kids. Well, of course. This yeah. is... Right, people... Play are mo- to people's emotion. Yeah, and it, it just... It keys in in a far deeper and more re- realistic way than to go, like, look at this chart and look at this table of data compared to... Yeah. Here is, here is what polio does to you. But then if you ever... Right. And then, like, Neil deGrasse Tyson got in trouble after not this last school shooting, but the one before... One of the ones... One of the many um, for tweeting that you know, as as awful as this is, let's not forget that handguns kill a hundred times more people right. and traffic accidents kill a thousand times more people or whatever, which, you know, maybe bad timing, but it is true. Well, that is and, true. And, but also there are very easy interventions that aren't being done to, yes, you could then yeah. go like, yes, but what if there was a concerted effort in, in the government to not even research methods of reducing traffic deaths? Right, right. Yeah. Uh, but I do have a pro- like, okay. I don't, I, this is going to be an unpopular opinion, but um, I was just talking to someone who has a friend whose child is in elementary school. I want to say, and they did an active shooter drill, and she, the kid was talking about it. And like, yes, you want to. I guess everyone wants to believe that they have some power over chaotic things. So we we, we think doing this empowers us and shows we're not doing nothing. But like, there's a cost. There's a psychological cost. 
to putting every child in the country through this. No, I agree with you on that one. I think I I think that's terrifying sure. and reducing their quality of life and giving yeah. kids anxiety. And if you, if you give particularly there's people- like drills. Have you seen ones where they're actually like firing simulations of real guns? And there's like... So I can giving kids PTSD for something that isn't... There's something that's so unlike... Again, I'm not trying to downplay it. Like Even the one in Santa Clarita yesterday, two people died, horrible tragedy. It happened in 16 seconds. And then he turned the gun on himself. Like, do any of these drills have done anything to help someone in those 16 seconds? Probably not. Like, you're really just making kids terrified and not actually giving them any tools that are going to help them in this... In the very unlikely, very unlikely case... True, that's awful when it happens, but it's still it's so much less likely than that you're going to die in a car ride to, yeah, to school. Yeah, and, and also I, I do wonder, I, no, I, I agree with you on that, and also I do wonder how much, and I don't know if there's been studies into this, because again, it's very hard to research, because government money is not allowed to be assigned for research to these things, right. but whether even doing these drills puts the idea of shooting more into kids heads because again there's be been research yeah. in like the way it's the way it's reported the power of suggestion well the way the way it's reported the way these shootings are reported in the news have been shown to increase copycats i'm sure the same way the same way you're not meant to report suicides in certain ways because it encourages copycats you're meant to downplay minimize localize not describe methods don't in any way glamorize the activities um, and it's not like during these drills they and, have the potential shooters leave the room. The shooters are in the room for the drill too. Yeah, right? like Chappelle I mean, had a whole bit yeah, about yeah, that yeah. in his last <laughs> oh, special. Yeah. Oh, like, he's like, oh, so where are we going? <laughs> yeah. Oh shit! Okay. Yeah, um, it was actually a brilliant bit. But but I wonder how. I wonder if it will come out that I, I don't know how you would even study it statistically. It's very hard. But if you know, like things like those scared straight programs, which have been shown to increase criminality in the kids who oh, go through do them. They really? <laughs> I didn't know that. There's that makes sense. Yeah, they've like those various programs where they basically you know, take kids who are on the cusp of criminality and like show like take them into a prison whatever and scare the shit out of them go like you come here i'm gonna be in the cell with you and all that kind of shit like, <laughs> like this is kind of cool or, or even just like just fucks them up more and just ends up oh, just yeah. sending them down a path more yeah those those camps have been shown i think we even covered it in the show years ago but those camps have been shown to do the opposite of good yeah yeah like not just have no effect but actively have harmful effect on outcomes for the children you know what could help everybody you know could help everyone and, and educate everyone and get everyone to be a little more of a critical thinker would it be some kind of online course where for a subscription you get access to thousands of lectures given by top class professionals in their field i'm not i'm not saying it could solve every problem i'm just saying who knows what societal problems could be solved if we all decided to go to thegreatcoursesplus.com slash probably and, and get a free trial of thousands of lectures God. on hundreds of subjects. Well, they said, I know I'm just a guest, but that sounds like a good deal to me. <laughs> <laughs> it sure does. It really does. No? It's, um, we've, we've currently been, here's a brand new course we've been piling into, the, a field guide to the planets. You know, just in case you want to visit them one day. I actually, so you asked me my relationship to science. I would say outer space and other planets was the first thing scientifically that fascinated me, like as a child growing up. I definitely went through a big Out, astronomy phase as a yeah, kid. Outer space still grips me. It really, yeah, it's very cool. So this this, this new course, it sort of explains, it sort of takes you, th- I mean, this it's in the title, but it takes you through planets. So things like since we first walked on the moon a half century ago we've discovered almost 200 additional moons of all shapes sizes and compositions uh did you know that the solar system's tallest mountain by quite some way is on mars talking about i olympus, did not know that olympus mons yeah. yeah it is 27 kilometers tall wow which is fuck you everest yeah yeah you pissy little hill 
what is, what is Everest? Probably like ten. It's it's a uh, twenty eight thousand feet, which is over five miles, almost six miles, so just under ten k. I'm gonna say it's nine th- nine kilometers. It so is. This thing is three Everest. Here we go. Yeah, it's twenty nine thousand feet. Is that what you just said? I said twenty eight. I was off. So in kilometers, that would be eight point eight five. Okay. Well, that's. I mean. It's fascinating stuff like that. Like uh, I remember learning the the eye on Jupiter is a permanent hurricane three times the size of all of Earth. Oh yeah, yeah. the red spot. Yeah, it can learn all about that. About the fact that the Kepler Space Telescope stared at a single little patch of sky for four years, and from that, scientists identified twelve hundred new exoplanets. This, I think, this is still one of the coolest things that have uh, come about in recent years in science and recent astronomy and astrophysics is going from positing the possibility of one or two planets maybe out there around stars to realizing that almost every star in the solar uh, in the universe has planets multiple planets yeah certainly like everything that or every star that we've observed in our galaxy now pretty much that they've pointed a telescope about they found evidence of planets now yeah what other science fields in my lifetime have had that much of a complete change of like we don't know if this might be to like this is definitely yeah. but what but what importance did that lead to like in improving that stars all have planets well, well it's, it, it's I, pro- making it very it's making it vanishingly likely basically statistically that impossible. Other life out there uh, it's unlikely that there isn't other life yeah, yeah it's, right. it's the chances are so low as our past uh, was it adam frank who was talking yeah about so that? that's yeah. one of so that's one of the main things there's the the drake equation which is a sort of statistical reckoning of the likelihood of life being out there in the universe other than us and it just multiplies together a bunch of factors and it's basically it's at its simplest it is the number of uh galaxies in the universe multiplied by the number of stars per galaxy multiplied by the average number of planets per star multiplied by the uh average or the likelihood of that planet being in the goldilocks zone of life multiplied by how long life on earth lasts because that'll also tell us the chance of... Or how long that's our best estimate a, for how long life will... Yeah. Okay. So it multiplies all these different factors together, and one of those factors in there is the average number of planets per star, which has gone from, I don't know, maybe 0.0001 to many above one. So that okay. factor has, bu- has been bumped up by many, many orders of magnitude in our lifetime. I and, asked yeah. a question and you answered. So that's, that's one thing. And also it just gives us more of an idea about the formation of the galaxies and the universe in general. And and actually, this guest I'm referring to, Adam Frank, he talks about uh, how this can apply to figuring out how to deal with a climate crisis, because this might be a thing that every planet goes through as a species learns how to harness its resources and become... I forgot the term for when when life becomes industrial. It was a different term he used, but like maybe this is a growing pain that any kind of life would inevitably hit, because when you first start to harness fuel and and make and you know yeah. make tools that make your life easier you're not going to anticipate that that's eventually going to change your environment but it might be inevitable that it does and it might be a thing that ends all life on other planets that has ended you know maybe this is a thing where like within a couple hundred years of any species becoming again i forgot the term he uses to mean but sort using of up to be the resources from their home planet. yeah like when you start yeah. to harness your planet's resources maybe that kills life uh, inevitably in a couple of years or maybe it's a thing you can get past if you and also that gave us a really interesting way of like looking at global warming climate change of just it would be weird if we weren't warming the earth like it 
one of the things you look for is like uh, is planets warming to is a way to look for um a way right. you look for the possibility of life is to go like is this planet warmer than you would expect based on its materials and its proximity to its star has it got a higher average temperature because that's a sign of life mm-hmm. and the more life there is the more it'll warm whether it's intelligence or not interesting and intelligent life will warm it even more and it would be strange it of course we do. Of course human activity warms the planets. Like it would be, as any intelligent life activity would. So it's not a thing we have to feel like, oh, we fucked up as much as it's just like, well, here we are. What do we do It's happening. It? So, now how do we control it and how do we mitigate it? Uh, so the course is taught, this one, the Field Guide to Planets, is taught by uh, Sabina Stanley, who is a professor at, the, a Bloomberg Distinguished Professor, no less, at the Morton K. Blaustein Department of Earth and Planetary Scientists at John Hopkins. Future, future President Bloomberg. Oh. Yep. Who is? Yeah, she's she's also from University of Toronto and Harvard. Has a PhD in you geophysics know, from Harvard. You know she's a smart. Is. She's a smarty. You know who's all about and also Bloomberg. a great communicator. Um, Judge Judy. Judge Judy. Did you see all that? about Bloomberg? Bloomberg Bill Maher. Yeah. <laughs> it was so bizarre. She is all in. She came on on Bill Maher. I guess she never does TV appearances besides her own yeah. show. She came on just to. She plug. was awesome though. I like yeah. seeing Judge Judy outside cool. of the yeah. robe and the bench. I didn't, I didn't realize she how is big the highest her. paid person in TV. She gets yeah. like 10 million people watching a show. Judith Scheinlin. Insane. It's bonkers. Like, no, yeah. You think about like all of your favorite TV stars, your actors or whatever, go like the, the leads in your favorite TV shows are out earned oh, multiple times Judy. over by Judge Judy. Ellen and Oprah do not get the numbers she gets. That's, that's crazy. And by the way, did we mention, we should mention just for one last time, thegreatcoursesplus.com slash probably you'll get a free trial. You can watch uh, a field guide to the planets or any of their courses. Yeah, they're not all science. We've been picking the science courses right. because that's our deal. But yeah, you can jump across anything from the arts, from literature, from humanities uh, and field guide to the planets. Great course. Yeah, you can watch it on mobile. You can watch it on your laptop, on your set top box, whatever you want to do. And you can also follow Professor Stanley at at Planet Sabina. That's oh, nice. Yeah. Do you have another story you like, Matt? Well, why don't we do a planet story? Why there was a um, sure. uh, this is one uh, uh, the oxygen in Martian air. I don't think I put this one in the doc here, but there's an oxygen mystery on Mars. Oh, yeah, I'm going to chuck this at the top of the uh, cool. uh, the doc here. There you go. It's there now. There is, this is written by Bruce Lee because I want this to be in the form of like a um, Agatha Christie. This is written by Paul Rincon, who's the okay. science editor at the BBC News website. But I could try and chuck in some Bruce Lee style. Let's do it. Lee it up. The oxygen in Martian air is changing in a way that can't currently be explained by known chemical processes. Not just changing, changing, really changing. Change like think of the changiest change, change you've ever change. changed and there it double is. it because that's some change. Perfect. That is the claim of scientists working on the Curiosity rover mission who have been taking measurements of the gas. They discovered the amount of oxygen in Martian air. They put, he puts air in quotes rose by 30% in spring and summer. The pattern remains a mystery, but researchers are beginning to narrow the possibilities. While the changes are most likely to be geological in nature, planetary scientists can't completely rule out an explanation involving microbial life. Mm. The results came from nearly six Earth years, which is three Martian years worth of data, from the sample analysis at Mars Instrument, a portable chemistry lab in the belly of the Curiosity rover. Uh, Oh, Sample analysis at Mars yeah, is I think, Sam. That I, should think, be. I think we talked. To, I think uh, did you write this part of the 
when we were writing for the Science Channel show, we read about the Curiosity. Did you write? It? I think you did. Maybe I wrote. That's why you I wrote did. on the you wrote on the Curiosity analysis at Mars. Yeah, yeah. The scientists measure seasonal changes in gases that fill the air directly above the surface of the Gale Crater on Mars, where Curiosity landed. They have published their findings in the journal J- JGR Planets. The Martian atmosphere is overwhelmingly composed of carbon dioxide with smaller amounts of other gases such as molecular nitrogen, argon, molecular oxygen, and methane. Nitrogen and argon followed a predictable seasonal pattern changing according to how much CO2 was in the air, which in turn is linked to changes in air pressure. They expected oxygen to follow this pattern, but it didn't. It rose during each northern hemisphere spring and fell in the autumn. And by the way, you didn't mention this when you were talking about signs of life on exoplanets, but like finding oxygen at all in an atmosphere is usually a sign of life because it's pretty unstable and wants to form other compounds. So like that's if, it, yeah. if this were an exoplanet and we found oxygen, we'd probably be like, does that mean life? Maybe. Uh, they consider the possibility that CO2 or water molecules released oxygen when they broke apart in the atmosphere, leading to a short-lived rise, but it would take five times more water than there actually is to produce the additional oxygen. And carbon dioxide breaks up too slowly to generate it over a short time. We know oxygen is created and destroyed on Mars through the energy provided by sunlight breaking down CO2 and H2O, both of which are observed in the atmosphere. The thing that doesn't make sense is the size of the variation. It doesn't match what we expect to see, says Dr. Manish Patel, from the Open University, who's not involved in the study. Given that Curiosity makes measurements at the surface of Mars, it's tempting to think this is coming from the surface, but we have no evidence for that. Geologically speaking, it seems unlikely. I can't think of a process that could fit. Um... So one of the authors, Dr. Timothy McConchie from the University of Maryland, says, you can measure the water vapor molecules in the Martian atmosphere and you can measure the change in oxygen. There aren't enough. There aren't enough water molecules. Mars in general has a pretty small amount of water vapor and there are several times more oxygen atoms that mysteriously appear than there is water vapor on the entire planet. They also consider why the oxygen dropped back to levels predicted by known chemistry in the autumn. One idea is that solar radiation could break up oxygen molecules into two atoms which escaped into space, but after running the numbers, they concluded it would take at least 10 years for the oxygen to disappear in this way. Fuck, mystery! Mystery, where's the oxygen? The seasonal rises also aren't repeatable perfectly. The amount of oxygen varies, so that implies something is producing the gas and taking it away. Monsters! Oh, Mars monsters. I think monsters. Fuck yeah. Dr. McConchie thinks that the evidence suggests a source of oxygen in the near surface points to a reservoir in the soil that interchanges with the atmosphere to exchange with the atmosphere fairly rapidly on a seasonal time time scale has to be close to the surface is there any kind of consensus on this in the scientific community with mars and life like is a popular growing consensus that there used to be life on mars i don't think there's consensus on that or not no i don't think they know yeah i think it's unknown at all whether there is or was this is a very long article, by the way. It, it, you picked a long one. I, I was have. going to say. <laughs> so, supporting evidence, some supporting evidence comes from the Viking landers, which touched down on the red planet in the 70s. Results from the Viking gas exchange experiment shows that when the humidity was increased in a chamber containing a sample of Martian soil, it led to a release of oxygen. So, ah, it's, all, it's all a mystery. We're going to put a link to this, as we do to all of the stories, on propertyscience.com. Cool. But it could be produced by microorganisms. The possibility that biology is behind it cannot be ruled out. Out, but the scientific bar on such claims is set very high. Dr. Patel says, 
While I believe biological activity in the Martian subsurface at some point in the history of Mars is a real possibility, there's your answer, no. There is no way to explain this through oxygen-producing microbes. We're missing the copious other indicators that would come along with that. Maybe it's all hidden, but as a scientist, I can only comment on what we observe. If any listeners uh, know definitively whether there's life on Mars, please contact us. Oh, yeah, yeah. Yeah, just share the secret. <laughs> yeah, I want to know. If you guys are holding out, don't. There's no reason to. It's a, we'd like to know. Um, Matt, do we have time for a, a pretty cute story that's got a... What do you got? Uh, this is something Paul Muxworthy sent us about the fact that uh, unseen for decades, the elusive mouse deer has been spotted tiptoeing through a Vietnamese forest. Oh, I actually saw that. Let me throw this guy up on the screen because he's pretty cute. Yeah, I saw that story. Look at him. Look at that mouse deer. Look at that mouse deer that very much seems like it was invented by a kid. (laughs) Why is it not showing up on... Here it is anyway. I got it right here. Look at that thing. It's the silver-backed chevrotain. There we go. Oh. Researchers with the conservation group have caught the tiny ungulate, nicknamed the Vietnamese mouse deer, on camera in Vietnam. Their findings have been published in Nature, Ecology, and Evolution. I actually think it's very, very ugly. I don't find it cute at all. I would not like to come across it in the wild. It does look like someone has glued a mouse to the front of a deer. I mean, that's exactly... It's only 9.8 inches tall. It's got tiny fangs. It's got white from its chin to its belly. Oh, those fangs are actually kind of tippy toes. 9.8 inches. That's what, like 20, 25 centimeters tall? This, This diagram of all of the features of it that's tweeted by the Global Wildlife Conservation literally... Shows a sh- close up of its feet and points to it, points to its quote tippy toes. It is standing on its tippy toes. Yeah, the yep. mouse deer is wearing stilettos. Mm-hmm. Oh, that's a cute little. Less important to the science, but I feel like overlooked by you two is the writer's name Muxworthy. That's a that's a great last name. Yeah, it's a solid name. Well, that's our listener who sent in the story, not, oh. the, not the author. Of Good the, on you, Muxworthy. Yeah, Paul Muxworthy sent in a few in the past. So it's neither a mouse nor a deer. Good on you, Muxworthy. Sounds like something, like sounds very 70s film. Like, Good on you, Muxworthy. Yeah, that was my best attempt. <laughs> Why can't you be more like Muxworthy here? I was hoping you'd pick up on that one. <laughs> or like one of Willy Wonka's assistants. Oh, totally. Slugworth and Muxworthy? Yep. Oh, now we got live footage of him. There it this is. This article has a little video of the guy... Look at him! If you if you told me this was a, a zoomed in or Wait, a zoomed out picture of an actual deer, like it walks like they, a deer. It's they gonna... just found one. Um, let me see if this is because he obviously came from two. Right, right. For almost thirty. I'm sorry, you already started reading it, didn't you, Matt? Well, that's okay. Yeah. We can jump ahead. I mean, there's not much more to the story other than it's they cute. Found it. They found it. They found it. And the last time was 1990. Should we? Uh... Yeah, we we should probably wrap up. Maybe we'll squeeze in one extra story for the Patreon listeners. Sure, sure. The Patreon bonus ones. But yeah, they, they they had very little information to go on. There were only two known places where they had evidence of scientific records. They found a region of Vietnam to search in based on where one of those records had been located. It still left a pretty large area to search. Here's the other thing. Because it's been missing for so long, it still thinks the war is going on. <laughs> still fighting. Uh, hey, Noah. Yes. Where can our listeners find out more about you and everything you do? Uh, on all social media, I'm at Noah G Comedy, and my website is noahgcomedy.com. Sweet. That yeah. is where they can find out. You got like a Comedy Central half hour out there and an album. I and, do, yeah. And you can I, watch Marvelous and yeah. Mrs. Maisel and 
See if you can pick out which words he wrote. There you go on Amazon Prime. And you've De- been on December sixth is season three. You've been on it as well, correct? Yeah, I was. I played a comedian uh, in one episode, but that was more of an inside joke from the writers' room because they know how much I hate my face without a beard. <laughs> and comedians in the 50s were all clean shaven and so the creator of the show Amy Sherman Palladino generously but also kind of to fuck with me cast me as one of the comedians just to force me to shave my face <laughs> you didn't do some like crazy prosthetics where they matted down your beard no and I wish I would, have, I would have much preferred that just <laughs> or had ju- jowls or just painted it out with CGI like oh. they had to do with Superman oh that's right I forgot about that <laughs> I didn't know that. What, Henry Cavill? Because he was yeah. filming something else? I can't remember just, what it was. Yeah, was I can't remember what it was he was filming at the same time, but when it was the the last or penultimate film that he was in, he had a really... In every scene, his upper lip is just slightly blurry and hazy because it's... Oh, it was just a mustache, not a... Yeah, he had a mustache painted out in like digitally in every scene. How big was this other project that they couldn't get Superman to shave his mustache for? You'd think the other project would lose out or they would just have (laughs) to give him a prosthetic mustache. You should add mustache, then take mustache away. It really does. It's very... Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. So why... Hang on. Why is that that they had to do that? He had a... What was it? He was... It was in the Justice League. And... I I think it was... I, I once heard a story. One of my friend's friends was one of the like visual editors on Blue Bloods mm-hmm. and he said that like 90% of his work day was photoshopping out Tom Selleck's jowls and oh. like double chin <laughs> they do, but they do that now and like in, in films yeah. like people get um, six packs enhanced digitally sure in just regular it's weird how many non action films now have CGI non special effects right. films vanity that and just and just other things like crowd scenes and everything are just yeah, add, augmented sure. with CGI in a way you wouldn't think. So here we go. It was because Justice League overran and had had reshoots. It was uh, okay. it was during the reshoots, and then the reshoots overlapped with Mission Impossible Six, Got which it. is also a massive movie. Yeah, all right, I right. get it. Yeah. yeah, I guess and it's not an indie film that he was like, no, my character's is, got a mustache, man. I'm... Is that one already out? Mission Impossible Six. Yeah, yeah, that's the, that's the last one. It was that was the it was great. Oh really? Okay. I oh me, I, I, I highly this. recommend that one. Okay. Very good. Can I can I unrecommend something? Martin Scorsese can suck it if he's like t- talking shit about all the comic book movies. Then he puts out the three and a half hour Irishman. Have you guys seen it yet? No, it's not out yet, is it? Oh maybe. Okay, I guess I went to it uh, uh, was an advanced screening, but oh. Oh, that was just a way to humble brag. I, didn't, I know. I thought it was already out. I thought it was. In hey, the- can I unrecommend something <laughs> just to let you know that I'm a, a Hollywood insider? <laughs> I thought it, I thought they were doing the month long theater run before it goes to Netflix, like they're doing for a bunch of those. But like Jesus, it could have been half the length, and I just don't care about those kind of movies. <laughs> Are you uh, a big mob movie guy? Yeah, I like okay. mob movies. Maybe you'll love it. You'll I'm love a mob it. movie guy much more than a comic book movie guy. Okay, I'm I'm just wrong on this one. But there it is. There's kind of so it wasn't in every scene, but it was in some of the reshot scenes. Oh, That's yeah, what his like mouth looks, looks kind of like weird. He got punched in the mouth. Yeah, it looks slightly off. Is that the Patreon story that we're doing? No, we're gonna, we're gonna squeeze it in. We're gonna squeeze in an extra one. I'm not sure what it is yet. Should we say but goodbye for now? We then... we should do so. Yeah, follow Noah online in all the places. He's very funny. Check out all his comedy stuff. You can find us at Probably Science individually at Andy T Wood at Matt Kirshen. Probably Science gmail.com is our email address to send in questions, comments, clarifications, stories you want us to cover. You can also find us at Facebook slash Probably Science. Uh, listeners that's also where you can find the Patreon and the PayPal donation buttons mm-hmm. thank you very much everyone who does that 
And thank you, Noah. And also, thank once again, go to the Great Courses Plus slash probably for a free trial. Greatcoursesplus.com slash probably. Yes. yes the Great Courses Plus. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Thanks. Bye. Thank you.